0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We read all the news so you don't have to. Fintech Insider is brought to you by the lovely folks from 11FS. We believe that digital banking is only 1% finished and us, well, we're here for the other 99%. My name is David Breer and we are coming to you for the very first time from our new home in the WeWork in Algate. Woo! Ooh. Loving loving the place. Good vibe. We're kind of winding down the hours to about 4.30 when the beer tap comes on. Whoa, uh, I think it's 4, four o'clock. It? All right. We might have to drag this first section out a little bit. <laughs> Brace yourself, guys. This is going to be a long one. Today, I am joined by my 11FS colleagues, Jason, Simon, and Aidan. Say hey, guys. Hello. Hey. Yeah, hello. Lovely. And our first guests in our new home, uh, two people come and return at least for another crack at this one in terms of how we're going. There were complaints from you mainly about how long we took and stuff, so like, we're going to have to narrow this down. We'll be kind on the second return. So anyway, we have Sarah from Business Insider. Sarah, say hey. Hi there. And we have Kadim from the FT. Hi there. I think we're going to not give you the title that we gave you last time. I remember listening back to this, oh, and okay. basically you were like the, the god of the FT or something, I think, we gave you. <laughs> is t- the
1: financial title. It is actually still the case that I am the okay. financial time. How many times
2: do we have to say it before you could put it on a Wikipedia page?
1: Oh, actually, having a Wikipedia page is one of my biggest ambitions in life.
0: Anyway, let's move on. Let's get on with the news. And first up, we have a really interesting story in Recode. So this is Apple is in talks to launch its own Venmo. Aidan, what's going on here?
3: Yeah, Jason Del Rey over at Recode. Um, Apple, they want to get into the P2P game. They they don't want Venmo taking all the fun. You know, they want to apply their boring design standards to it that some of the guys in the room will love. Some of the guys Says think- the Android guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically some sources saying that they're in conversation with Visa to uh, creating its own prepaid cards that would run on the Visa Debit Network and there would be tied to the new peer to peer service. So they've had a crack at this kind of thinking before, but I know I am a bit of an Apple Cynic, but their services record ain't great. Uh, but obviously, you know, there's a huge ecosystem to build into there. And there's obviously a huge opportunity, whether this is just a little bit of rumor or
0: actually there's some substance to it, and they're actually really going to go for it. I'm not so sure. Super interesting. So they've currently gone around the globe signing up banks to Apple Pay and now they're like, "Haha, we're doing this as well." <laughs> so th- that's going to be an interesting dynamic, right?
2: But in the end they have more credit cards than anyone. I mean, anyone who has a an Apple phone puts their credit card in to buy apps. So there's there's
4: payment stuff in there already. It's how you how you make the most of that. But this is prepaid, isn't it? This yeah. is this is a prepaid service. So I'm going to take VPay from Visa, which is a prepaid service Visa's been offering for about what 10 years and nobody uses. And I'm going to take that and I'm going to clue it into my amazing, terrible ability as Apple to deliver services. And I'm going to make your... Like, but there is an interesting thing here about this... Uh, I love your Pixel phone, Simon. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's really, really, really nice. But there is a thing here about over time, most Apple rumors come out to be true. Like there's it, it, over a long enough time horizon, which says they value peer-to-peer um, payments as a service. And I don't think anybody's really got that OS-level peer-to-peer service right. So there's an opportunity here.
5: Yeah, I, well, I think it's because we're in the UK as well is an interesting one because I always, when I speak to my American colleagues about peer to peer, that like, oh my God, Venmo is brilliant, and I'm like, why would I use that? I can just send you money using my banking app. Mm. Um, so I think After there's pain. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's this great thing, and they still haven't bought it. Um, but I think I think there is definitely a, a market. We have to decide which market, you know, they were going to launch this in. I think that the prepaid thing is a really Interesting idea, because the point about the prepaid card would be that the money would appear instantly. So you wouldn't have to wait for that three-day American ACH clearing to happen. So I think that's why they want maybe want to go down that route, which which would be an advantage in America, because right now it still takes you three days to get money, even from your mates. So I, I kind of I can kind of see the logic to that bit. There is a lot of competition in that market. There is no great way of how to monetize it. So it would have to be kind of a, let's bring people on board this way. So I'm I kind of I want to know a little bit more about it. I can kind of see how it might work, but there's more detail that needs to sort of be Filled in there for me before I'm on board. It kind of reminds me of the
4: ill fated Google Wallet, which predates Android Pay. And Google Wallet back in the day had a Google card in it, and then you could load any other card into it just by entering the 16 digit number and your expiry and your, your CVV And that was an idea that, like, yeah, exactly the same thing. You could move money between people instantly, and you could preload it from another card, and you could use that to spend wherever you went online, or you could send money to other Google Wallet users. And nobody used it. And I think there is just this thing about these fintech payment services that to gain critical mass seems really, really hard for them. Uh, unless it's inside their own kind of uh, iTunes universe. And if it's if they're doing something in that iTunes universe, if they're doing something that's integrated deeply with iMessage, that could be interesting. Um, but let's see if they can gain adoption for it. Because you know, peer-to-peer payments, like you say, in the US, are, are phenomenal. But isn't this a
2: another pull from that, you know, WeChat black hole seems to be the platform play that everyone's shooting for. Whether it's Facebook where they've got Messenger and now they're enabling chatbots in order to do commerce, whether it's Apple that is suddenly moving from just buying apps to now loading money and having a payment mechanism, surely people are aiming for
1: for the bigger the bigger WeChat style play. Yeah, I think there's a sort of there's a thing going on where we can all see that there's a like a behaviour that makes sense, right? We all have phones, we all have apps that we speak to each other and we know how it works in China. And there's this question of, well, then why isn't it happening? And so, I mean, even sort of disagree slightly about the UK. I mean, I would love to have Venmo. I mean, I would love to have like a, you know, three, four, taps on the phone, and my buddy has the £10 that I owe them. At the moment, it's like, hey, uh, send me your bank details, blah, 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 blah.
2: Unless and- you've
4: got a Monzo card. I, oh, I just yeah,
2: want
1: yeah, to yeah, yeah.
6: throw
4: that in. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> it's critical mass. It's here. Circle's here. PayPal's been here for 10 years. Like, the service exists. People just don't use it. Whereas in the US, it's played. A, it's fit into a niche that I don't think the UK is they've about.
3: Obviously, Venmo's they've also they built a kind of social network around it. It's not just pure functionality of... Sending money, is it? There's more to it than that. You can that.
7: have a
5: cool name and, you know, put your picture on it. But actually that plays quite easily into it because I don't remember your six-digit sort code, but I will remember your your name. So I kind of, I see the point about that, that there's, it is how you do it. But again, how, but the point for Venmo is how do they make any money from it? So Apple's not going to make money from it, so they've got to have another motivation.
4: The, Apple's ultimate goal is selling devices. And this is why I think that platform play is, is difficult because they are a company that is driven by sales targets for the iPhone device. That is their primary motivation. Whereas for a Facebook, for a Google, it's more about where is our platform and how many ads can we serve to people. And that's more akin to a, a Tencent or an Alipay. Uh, they're, they're more in that marketplace space. But it, the really interesting thing about Tencent and especially um, Alibaba is they are two-sided marketplace. There's their Amazon plus they're a chat business. their Amazon plus they're a payments business. And we don't really have that in the West. So could we easily replicate it? I think we're going to see people try and try and crack this nut, but not necessarily get as far as we've seen.
0: I think the, um, the worrying things for me is it kind of feels like Apple's turning into this fast follower mentality you know we've seen them with apple music which hasn't really been that successful copying spotify you know we're starting to see them start to copy other players like venmo in this space potentially as well you know it it feels to me like the innovation just isn't quite there and actually to your point around the rumors really you know like i I kind of sounding like an old man here but i I long for the day of going back to sort of the excitement of what's actually going to be talked about rather than just like you know half-baked things but then, haven't they always been the fast follower? You know, that's almost their modus
2: operandi, that, that they weren't the first with a smartphone. They just did it really well. They weren't the first with a smartwatch. Okay, they've done it okay. Um, you know, they seem to watch the market, look for their timing, do a lot of development and testing and iteration internally, and then launch something. So I could see them getting into this. I think it's an interesting question about how a device seller a device manufacturer makes the most out of this because just as you say it seems to fit better with amazon facebook you know the those consumer platforms
3: i think the way that venmo could make some money is if somebody buys them Apple is they're sitting on two hundred and fifty billion dollars. They have they, not they're, they're owned not, by PayPal, aren't they? have not
4: <laughs> and PayPal shares were really up in like the last quarter as well, largely driven by Venmo and largely driven by Braintree actually, but probably Venmo is a small part of that.
5: Oh, so the so pay with the pay with Venmo is how they how they've decided they're going to try and make it work for them. But for them, absolutely, it's an acquisition tool. That's you know people love it. They get it because their mates have got it. So then it's, it's an acquisition tool.
0: But uh, I guess moving on, being unfortunately, because we could probably talk about this one for the next hour or so in terms of where we're at. We do love some Apple... Apple news and we do love Aiden and Simon getting sort of angry about it as well which is which is nice um so next up we have a article on medium so this is the first real revolution in venture capital is that real Simon
4: uh, I don't know if it's the first real revolution in venture capital, because that, that probably came around, uh, well, the most recent one I can think of is probably the dot-com boom, which has you know, kind of changed uh, venture capital forever.
0: And I'm quite quite scared to start talking about sort of crypto tokens and cryptocurrencies here. Are we going to kind of go down a bit of a rabbit warren on this one and get, like, angry people on Twitter? Or? Come
4: join me. I'm a mad hatter. Okay. Um, <laughs> would, you, like, uh, would you like some tea? I'm in. Um, let's go. All change. We need to change chairs. Um, no, I think there's there's a lot of stuff going on here. First, we're got to, like, deal with the language because crypto tokens is just like this really weird sounding thing. But actually, it's just a way of issuing shares. Now, they're not calling them shares because they don't want the regulator to come down on them. And also, they they are a little bit different as well. It's this entirely new thing. They're essentially digital coupons. And this coupon, um, instead of it being issued as a physical piece of paper that somebody holds on your behalf at a bank or at a broker dealer, it's a, it's a coupon that sits inside a mobile app that's actually held on a database somewhere else. That database happens to be called blockchain that's neither here nor there it's held digitally instead of ultimately being held on paper which means it can easily be traded unlike um, shares they don't confer ownership rights but they give you a whole bunch
1: of software capabilities right (laughs) yeah i know can i jump in yeah please (laughs) please, please. please do so a uh i actually i read this article and i did not understand it at all and b what what is the point of investing in something if you're not getting the ownership rights? I mean, w- what this sounds like is um, people are coming up with really fancy ways of saying, "Give me your money and don't and and uh, in a way that doesn't sort of confer any rights upon you or any obligations. So, like owning me. Facebook stock, for instance. <laughs> well sure right but if 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 if, if, stock, yeah. <laughs> if the argument is the innovation in venture capital is that venture capitalists will be able to raise money and not have obligations to the people they raise money from then cool but it's not it, it, like it, 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 so, it so, does, so this is slightly like- different it's it's not the venture capitalists
4: that are raising money it's the projects themselves cutting out venture capital as a as a funding source so the the thing here is and i think jason said it before the podcast in the perfect soundbite, so I'm going to steal it from you. It's crowdfunding for geeks. Right? The, I, I but am,
1: crowdfunding without ownership
4: rights. Yes. It's crazy. But it's, it's crowdfunding, it's crowdfunding funding, not it's yeah. crowd not crowd equity. But what you do get is a little bit different. So you do get a set of software obligations that are immutable. Now, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, you no. have just lost like 95% of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. No, I, I remember sitting with my parents in, in, I think it was somewhere in Spain, listening to some guy trying to sell my dad Timeshare. A, <laughs> sounds sort of familiar. Simon has got two hundred cigarettes and some shave uh,
3: yeah, exactly. ready yeah. to give to Kadeem.
4: Let me unpack that. All right. So let's say I invent a computer that is is like on everyone's laptop in the world, and it can only follow instructions. That's all it can do. And let's say you believe that that's true. Let's because to go into how is going to take forever. Then I tell that computer that if this thing you invest in increases in value, then I'm going to pay you a dividend. Right, so if it achieves ABC that we'll see from the market, uh, it, raises, uh, you know, it raises its next funding target or it gets this much revenue or it does ABC, then you will automatically get in return a dividend of XYZ. And also, these tokens that you've got that do not infer ownership of the project, but that are tokens, are also tradable in these marketplaces, and they're going up and down in value, and those can be exchanged for real-world value. Well, you're going to say that's quite interesting, especially when uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, a project called Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which is a prediction market, which is a whole nother subject you're going to want to get into, <laughs> um, launched its own token, this, this crypto token thing. And this crypto token was launched at $30 and is now hovering around $90. Now, this is something that you could sell these Gnosis tokens if you just bought them and you could get your profit back. That is something that is you know has real world value. But I can see regulators, especially the SEC, kind of going, that looks a lot like shares without obligations. And you can see the regulators having real issue with it. But regardless, we've got to say that this is super, super interesting times.
5: Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Jason's literally going to burst. I'm sorry. Um, I understand that it is liquid and I understand that you can release value from it. But what can I do with my token when I get it other than like hold on to it and wait for something to happen, so the the the, so the metaphor in the article that we read is that they're like fairground tokens. But if I get a fairground token, I can go on a ride. Like, what do I do with my digital token? Like, can I get access to? Can I build things at like Ether? Can I use it to like build on the Ethereum network, or can I like buy things with it, or can I?
1: You just hold it and then you wait for the person you gave your money to to disappear. <laughs> and so it he's... is
5: like Kickstarter, <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay.
4: Well, so it depends on the token. They're, they're used in whole different ways. There's one called Zercoin, which. I represents the mining of zirconium and actually funds the mining of zirconium. So for that, you would get zirconium in return. Like, there's this... Okay. So, <laughs> so,
2: so is this... Could we describe it as, rather than ownership, talking about profit share, that I have tokens that give me a profit share on a, on a certain
1: Those piece. are called shares. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is so
2: crazy. <laughs> but they need
4: disrupting. <laughs> so the, there's two problems with shares. One is the individual can only buy them uh, once they're in public listed in public markets because apparently you're not sophisticated unless you have a lot of money and and
1: I don't know that but, having a lot of money makes can, you sophisticated you know if I, I can you know if i uh registered a company i could say to all you guys hey give me 10 pounds and you you'll have whatever number of shares right i can issue shares to the public. But the you know, public
5: can't then do anything with that share. They can't sell it to anybody else and they can't release a return until that company does something, until it's sold or until it IPOs or whatever else. What you're saying... Simon is that with these tokens the minute I've bought them if tomorrow I don't want them anymore I can sell them so it's liquid so it kind of gives you more flexibility. So you're on the
2: market from day one rather than Yeah IPO. and you're
5: not tied in to something that you have to and work And we'll call
4: it something else because otherwise the police are going to come and, uh, <laughs> and do something <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think it's just that I think it is genuinely different but at the same time I buy Kadim's point about there's something here that makes you raise your eyebrow and go this isn't fully baked and I've often said and, and I'm going to repeat this never spend on these things as an individual more Than you're willing to lose in Vegas because this is totally in the Wild West, totally unregulated. You are absolutely taking your life into your own hands with these tokens. But that said, it's something that's really interesting from a funding perspective because right now, as a small company, you've got really two choices. You either give away equity or you raise debt. That's how you fund yourselves. To have this third option that is highly technology based that allows you to do all of these if this then that type of uh, software. Programs inside of the inside of the raise is super super interesting, and I think we're going to see some interesting things happening. And um, the first thing we've seen, of course, is the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum have shot through the roof. Um, Bitcoin is now hovering around fifteen hundred dollars. Ethereum around eighty seven dollars this morning, which in last year, in uh, I think in I oh know it's twenty fifteen, Ethereum launched at a dollar. It's now at eighty seven dollars. So this could either be tulip mania all over again. Or
5: I used that example this morning. I'm glad somebody else does.
4: For those of you not familiar with the Dutch tulip mania, uh, this is when uh, this is when tulips exploded in price and then rapidly dropped. But, but I think that dropping drop in, some topical references this week. Aren't <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about the topical references. Good. Did I go to Costa Rica and just become the butt of all the <laughs> But, like, I, I think the, what's happening now is the market cap of Bitcoin is very different to what it was in 2013. Now, is it at fair value? I don't know. I think it, this looks unsustainable. But the, the projection of, you know, kind of these cryptocurrencies aren't going away. They are not disappearing. They are a thing and they're a force to be reckoned with. A couple of other stories this week, just as an example. The United Nations just launched its first large-scale Ethereum test. So the UN are now using this stuff and you've also got a story on TechCrunch where Spotify actually acquired a different blockchain startup media chain to solve a music attribution problem. So I think where we were maybe six months ago was the blockchain trough of disillusionment. This stuff is never going to happen. It's never going anyway. It's been corporate sanitized and it's really dull right now. But what's happened as ever is it's not inside the large corporates where the fun things are happening. It's at the fringes. It's at the edges. It's these weird things that look truly scary and a lot like Ponzi schemes. But some of them are genuinely interesting so i think we're an in interesting time I, I
0: think the the spotify one particularly is the one that kind of excites me because like the un feels like they might be able to get the wool pulled over our eyes in terms of like tech to a certain degree but That's the guys right. at spotify probably know this stuff right so if they're actually really using this in a uh, in the way that it actually outlines in the uh, the article, that it, it, it kind of feels like you say it's it's kind of
4: going mainstream, right? Yeah, because well, this is using blockchain not as a mechanism of moving money at all. This is using blockchain as an auditor, which I think it's actually very good at. So if I said everybody in this room gets a copy of all of our data and gets to audit it, and uh, there's only one person in this room that's Spotify, and everybody else in the room is not Spotify, but we all have to use this technology to see what the music attribution looks like, then we all sync up on who should be um, attributed uh, for how many times a song has been played. And you think, well, why is it a problem for Spotify to know how many times a song has been played? Well, it's not. They they have a pretty good grasp of how many times a song's been played. What they have an issue with is getting that money to the eventual artists because the system in the music industry of actually distributing money and uh, kind of having the number of plays against that is really opaque and mm-hmm. full of like middlemen like you wouldn't believe. So to have the system where everybody uses all one audit trail is is super, super helpful. And so there's... A real swing to people using the tech not the currency but in a weird way the currency supports the tech being open source and not having any one central party so therefore the currency price is increasing
1: I have a question about the currency price isn't that also related to a certain exchange called is it Bitfinex that's sort of you know you might raise an eyebrow about what's going on and there's questions about whether there's a mountain cocks two situation going on that's ramping the price up um, but I would agree about the Spotify story, which I think is sort of I find more interesting than the ICO crypto token story. Um, because to, to be
0: fair, you didn't pull as fun faces during the Spotify <laughs> one. So uh...
5: I mean, my my question about the Spotify one is why does that have to be blockchain? Why can't that be a distributed ledger of other that which which exist outside of blockchain? Like... Let's not
0: just start a why oh. is this not a database thing? Because like we're going to be here for a good. Simon <laughs> something
4: yeah. in my right. head. <laughs> he, he's been off for a week, so you
5: know he's okay.
2: like really got to ease okay. him in.
4: You know, I think it's a fair question, though. Why isn't it um, DLT? Well, you could argue media chain is a type of DLT, but I've always called blockchain a subset of DLT in the way that um, a car is a subset of vehicles. You also have boats, airplanes, and so on. It's it's a class rather than the individual species. Um, But MediaChain is actually a blockchain. That may be the one that Spotify did their due diligence on and met their needs the most, more so than anyone. Um, But you could use a DLT to solve similar sorts of problems. I'm guessing Spotify had a whole bunch of technical reasons why they wanted the specific characteristics of a blockchain um, that everybody gets a copy of every bit of data from an audit perspective makes sense. But if I'm in financial services, do I want everybody to get a copy of every bit of data um, in confidential transactions that my competitors can see Maybe I don't. Um, But Spotify probably don't care about that because they don't mind who sees how many times a song has been played inside their network because actually that's the problem they're trying to solve. Backing away
0: slowly from Crypto Corner, um, (laughs) we have a very interesting article on TechCrunch. So this is PayPal launches a small biz tool set. What's Mm. going on here?
2: Well, I guess we're seeing this unbundling and rebundling that we often talk about sort of happening in real life here. On one hand, you've got a variety of new services that can help small businesses. On the other hand, do you really want to use 20 different services to, to make that happen? So PayPal, that in the end, looking to to push their business account, this ring fence set of money that a business can, uh, can use for payments and receiving payments via online commerce, and saying, well, what are the bigger journeys here? Actually, it's not just you having an account, it's you running an online business. So what do they do there? Do they make their own online store? Do they stop bringing their own pieces in? Actually, not in an API world. You actually connect these players up and then you say, well, this is a bundle. If you open a PayPal account, you don't have to use WooCommerce and Zero, but if you want to, it means that you can sell online, accept payments anywhere, borrow for your business, because they've also got the working capital piece in there, and manage your finances. So this goes into the sort of business as a box territory. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing now a number of players come together to say, we offer a part of this journey, a part of the whole, but actually together we offer something greater, and the value then, then increases.
0: Hmm. A Really interesting idea. It's interesting that PayPal have done this rather than a bank as well, right?
2: Definitely, yeah. I, but you, you've got to you've got to look at banks doing this kind of thing rather than a just a, a mortgage journey. Surely that's part of a broader thing, moving house, changing your life, you know, moving from renting to, to buying something. So how do a, a different players, just as maybe uh, Spotify connects with someone that can do the asset tracking, how do, the, how do industry players move into these moments so that whenever you're looking to set up a business, move house, get a new car, all of the players come together in some kind of platform. So I think we're seeing this we've seen the unbundling that classic HSBC slide with lots of fintechs pulling different things out but I think now we're seeing the rebundling into end-to-end journeys. Mm.
5: I was going to say that I think the I think the banks are there but they're just being slower about it because Barclays launched their small business portal a few months back so they kind of I think the small business is are uh, finally somebody's realized there's a huge market they can make a lot of money from them how do they do it the fintechs got there first yeah. fintechs being a very broad term you know they can they can move things around more quickly they can store more data they can do loan processing all all that stuff it's just a question now for me is every time i write about small businesses i'm like and there's another one and another one and another one another one so it's kind of this popping up of all these different services the questions are who's going to win and how do they win so if you're PayPal, you've got a brand. You're PayPal, great. Probably why zero is gone with yeah. you know working with them. Also if you're Barclays, you know, that's gonna work in your favor as well. How good the services are will depend on you know what you develop. But I think it's a really, really interesting area, small businesses. I just want to wait and see now who's gonna who's gonna win with that customer acquisition element.
0: I think the thing that I find really interesting about this is it doesn't fix the biggest pain point of starting your business, which is getting a bank account. Oh
5: yeah. So so <laughs> like
0: this is like a this is a almost a you have to have a funded current account to actually actually get a pay you know to move it into paypal so you know it kind of fixes a lot of the problem but almost like the pain of starting a company in the first place still
4: isn't resolved really
5: is is the next stage for them to partner with somebody like tide maybe is that like the next thing here that we go for, you know, one of those digital only banks? Well,
4: the guys at Penta often say that they see the operating system of a small business being largely inside zero and in accounting and and kind of that that's your interface. And actually, the bank is kind of disappearing into the background. So how does the, the, the banking provider thread all of that together for you? So the, the, as Jason says, there's more and more people thinking this way um but i don't know if the banks disappear entirely from that there's still probably room for them to play and we were saying earlier that stripe has a product along these lines as well so i think we'll see more moving yeah
2: i um i was over in uh, a european bank talking to ceo and a group of people about sort of what's happening in fintech where it's moving where they should be going and there was this one moment where the ceo sort of sat back from the table and and a light went on and it was like a we're not playing on our own anymore, are we? Like, this is starting to be a. What year group is it? Game. 2017. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but that whole view of banking products within the bank, within the banking app, we control our destiny, the channels, the distribution, everything. And suddenly, actually, there are a lot of players, and suddenly that, you know, the platforms and partners, partnerships officer or group suddenly starts to appear and it's how do we pull together a group of players so together we can start to build you know build the market share rather than you're fighting me and we're fighting them it's like no let's get a gang it's like uh, you know West Side Story for for fintech.
5: Yeah, that's you your soundbite.
2: <laughs> so
3: we've just been actually playing with the uh, Barclays smart dashboard downstairs. Right. So that's an interesting play that, that it's like a widgetized dashboard. I can connect Zero. I can connect other popular services, and it feels like their first attempt at, at this play of well, we want to be the interface where you come. We don't want it to be Zero or elsewhere. So there's there's an interesting battle to see who does win, and it's for me, it's also an interesting parallel with small business feels more advanced than say retail but it feels like there's the
0: same battle coming mm. I think it's even bigger I think the SME market I think is uh, gonna get much more disruption in fact it's quietly had much more disruption happen to it than the retail space already really um, but definitely I think over the next you know two to three years I think that uh, it's a market sort of ripe for change so.
1: the question I always have is um, so you know we've had the unbundling and now the rebundling but um, but you know within a platform and you have separate companies with separate products, I always wonder, is that situation, uh, like, is that a stable point, you know, a stable point? Or actually is the direction that eventually so you know the platform provider says, "Well, this app is actually taking a lot of profit, so I want to buy that." Or we do that now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you do. You do see that, don't you? You know, you've seen platforms that have set up a you know a community and integrated stuff, and then you know totally screwed those people. I'm not going to name any names, but uh, you know totally screwed those people by pulling out a similar service. So it's um it's going to be interesting to see how that works. Moving on, uh, a very interesting article on the FT. So this is Bank of Mum and Dad is the ninth biggest lender. 6.5 billion loans, blimey. Which uh, Mum and Dad is this? Yeah, I know, this exactly. Not my Mum and <laughs>
4: Dad. Well, sorry. No offence, Mum and Dad, but uh, <laughs> come on, up your game.
0: You're holding <laughs> out on me. So naming no names, I spoke at a conference recently at a panel, and uh, the guy on the panel was talking about the fact that he just bought his daughter a house for getting married. Which was amazing because I got like a kettle. Not, not a <laughs> house.
5: You mean it was a wedding
0: present? The it house was. was a wedding the present. The house was a wedding present. Wow. Amazing. I got well, there's a reason <laughs> to get married. <laughs> so, I know, yeah. Like, I instantly proposed to his daughter. Um, anyway, Aidan, what do we think about this one in terms of uh, good old mum and dad? Well, I like Simon's point. I'd, I'd like, you know, richer
3: parents slash in-laws, but I, I I also have made use of the bank of mum and dad, so thanks mum and dad, mum and dad in-law, so thanks for that. Uh, but yeah, I think this is it's a traditional problem. As house, rises, ri- house prices rise, we, you know, we don't want to tie ourselves down with extra debt, or you can't just, you can't physically save that deposit. I think the other thing for me is it feels like there's a huge service opportunity here, and, and you want to keep it free and flexible, and I think some small players have tried to facilitate the bank of mum and dad, but A, banks was thinking, well, we could maybe help you with this lending or we could help mum and dad do this lending to you. And it it feels like there's a a real rich seam of there's an an unmet need here.
5: Have you seen the, uh, I can't remember which high street bank it is, which is now offering a mortgage which you get a much lower rate on if your parents use their savings to guarantee it. And I was just like, wow.
7: Barclays. There's
4: a recognition I I don't know if any other banks do it but I've definitely seen the Barclays advertisements for doing it. It's a recognition that boomers have the capital locked up and that the securitization boom of the past two decades and the quantitative easing has gradually pushed um, house prices so far out of the reach of the average salary. I mean the average house price in London is 11, 12 times the average salary. It's just absolutely obscene. So you've, you've got no chance but then as a result you've got the boomer generation that are sitting there on assets that are appreciating and they could unlock some of that equity. But unlocking that equity means that they're destroying value for inheritance. So it's it's kind of like what's the most tax efficient?
5: I think there's also another side to this, which is that that is one one way is, you know, as you say, how do we unlock, how do we unlock this asset, how do we unlock the capital? The other thing is, maybe we should just stop looking at buying property as the ultimate investment. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I think I probably fit into the generation to which they are describing in this article. Maybe we should be looking for other things to do with our money. Maybe, you know, you can't guarantee that property is going to go up. People, I think, seem to think that they definitely, definitely will. But, um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, 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 one of the interesting things about this story is that it kind of, um, subverts the uh, the narrative about sort of like intergenerational wealth disparities because it kind of shows that, well, you got, you got, you have to look at it by class, right? So there are actually young people, um, who do actually, there's a significant wealth transfer from a previous generation to this generation, it's just amongst a, cer- a certain strata of society. Um, I also think. I agree in, in sort of the sentiment of, well, maybe we shouldn't be so obsessed um, with owning houses. But the problem that we haven't yet figured out is if we decide we don't need to own houses, how do we ensure people have uh, like a, a pension, as it were? Because the two ways that people save for their retirement is they've been paying into a mortgage their whole life and they have a pension. Increasingly, pensions are not that great. And increasingly, this generation doesn't own property. And I think also... The UK, like if you look at historically property ownership, it is like 90% plus. Um, and so I don't think we've yet figured out how we deal with this change. Um, because if you're, you know, uh, you know, we're all pretty much sort of in the same generation. 50 years down the line, if we haven't been paying into a mortgage, well, what do we do? You know, if we're still renting... How do we live out the sort of remaining years of our life?
2: Yeah, I heard uh, Nick Hungerford from Nutmeg uh, present, I think it was in Edinburgh last year, and he made this one statement about the fact that the age for investment in Nutmeg was dropping. And he put that down to, well, where do you put your money? You know, it used to be you had a savings account that paid a good interest rate. That's gone. It used to be that then you put your deposit down on your house and away you went. And you had a company that was putting, uh, you know, a final salary pension or something. You were set. You were making money short term, you were investing in a, 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 an asset that would grow in wealth, and you had something that for your retirement. So what does a 20-something-year-old do now? And, and for me, the really interesting thing is suddenly you've got the population being introduced to risk. It was never really, you know, it wasn't really there before. It was, uh, I put my money here, they just give me money back. It's great. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, no, you've got to put your money here and it might go up and it might go down. And you can't really get on the housing ladder. You're not going to get any interest. So welcome to the world of, of behind, the, uh, behind the curtain. This is how it works. You so know? Tough love. Yeah. This
4: has been the nature in the US for a while, though that's effectively what a 401k has been for, for quite some time. The US pension scheme is you're putting money into a fund and that fund may go up or may go down. And if the market's bad at the time you retire, your your pension fund is a lot lower. Should you choose to take it, and from a Policy perspective, you can see the government in the UK has tried to do some stuff. You can see other governments have tried to do stuff. Um, So we've seen uh, the ISA tax limit has increased. But Jason, you're absolutely right. It's a symptom of being in a low interest rate environment. The fact that we keep interest rates consistently low means banks cannot give decent savings rates. Therefore, you don't put your money into an account like a savings account. You have to look for risk. That is pretty much your only choice because you're priced out of the property market. And when you're chasing risk, there are services that make it easier like nutmeg and scalable capital that are passive investing uh, but even then there's there's an element of risk and, and there's nowhere to get that real crypto return. tokens that's
2: yeah. where we go <laughs>
5: that's where there's, we go that's so. the advice <laughs> never just, just, put
2: more
4: on crypto tokens <laughs> than <laughs> well, I've what not your pension is that no <laughs>
5: So it's so just final thought, and I think I think that kind of brings the two points together, which is you know yeah we have a problem we don't have pensions which which our employers are going to give us and they're going to be final salary pensions and we're going to be you know running with it and a house at the same time so that's the problem that you have to try and solve and how do you solve it will you get you educate people, you educate them about risk and, and, you know, you you have to move from there. You have to work with what you've got. And if what you've got is the nutmegs and scalable capitals of this world, then why not get people to understand them better and, you know, understand what a private pension is for a start and then, you know, move from there.
4: We're seeing the beginnings of shared ownership mortgages. We're seeing the beginnings of the sharing economy. This is Silicon Valley's answer, which is actually you won't own anything. Um, We'll just share everything. And maybe you get more from less that way but but i I don't know that that's necessarily true because (laughs) are you sweating an asset or do you just have less are you worse off in real terms there's an the old economist argument that says in real terms our wages uh, the average wage is a lot lower than it was 20 30 years ago but actually now we've got credit so it's all okay and it's
1: like i I, I don't know (laughs) i think
4: cadim's about to explode (laughs) his his mind is being blown again (laughs) (laughs) Let me just be clear. I don't advocate
2: any of those no, things. No, no, no. I,
1: I, I sort of... I, there's a kind of logic that like, around some of the stuff in Silicon Valley, which is... It, it's almost like not inspirational. It's not ambitious. It's sort of saying, well... Everyone's screwed, so let's just feel good about the haves and have-nots. Let's right? all be screwed
5: together. <laughs> let's, you know, let's, let
1: yeah, let let's act like if it's a positive choice. When you can go, well, no, well, how? Well, maybe we should have ownership. Maybe we should find a way for it for to be broad wealth and and you know a, a relatively more equal society and and find a way for young people to get on the housing ladder and. But this know, is so a so very
4: Anglo-Saxon view, isn't it? I mean, if you're in Germany, you don't ever think about owning a house. You don't ever think that that's your goal or your ambition, and it's not something you necessarily aspire to. They,
5: they cap rent. For a start, which is a great, which is like that's that's another point. Isn't but the it? German London. economy
4: isn't doing too bad. I mean, granted yeah. they're benefiting from being in the middle of Europe and controlling the European uh, currency as a result. But you
3: know, we
5: do, we do have our own problems, I suppose, on that on that front.
4: <laughs> can I just give a <laughs> last shout
3: out yeah. to the people who created this report for trying to get the term BOMAD to work as a relevance related to bank? Oh, of what Mom- does that mean? Bank of Mum and Dad. Bank of oh. Mum and Dad. Awful. BOMAD. You know, you can imagine people in a room like this high fiving. They've come up with BOMAD. <laughs> I, actually, I can see it's the, it's the can, second worst yeah.
0: marketing term
3: of the podcast. That
0: we've got <laughs> one, holding up, on
3: we've got one coming up later. This.
0: Right, nice. Right, moving on. Uh, we have a story here that was actually submitted by Quinn Dempsey on Twitter. So, an article on American Banker. This is the exodus that was being talked about with R3. So, this is JP Morgan's defection underscores tough blockchain choices. Over to you, Simon.
4: Yeah, good question, Quinn. Um, I think the JP Morgan defection is one that is a challenge for R3. So R3, as we know, is a, a consortium, a buddying of 70 plus, 80 plus banks, financial institutions, and progressively more and more regulators uh, who can kind of explore all things to do with blockchain DLT to try and solve problems in financial markets. One of the th- key things that R3 is doing, of course, is building their own code base called Corda, which they call blockchain-inspired. So it's, yeah. Um, it's actually not a blockchain. It's DLT. Um, so go back to the, it's a vehicle um, subclass. It's not its not a car. But this Corda is made some architectural choices. So it's, it's only going to replicate data between the parties to a transaction. It's owned and managed by the consortium. And then there's a whole bunch of people in that consortium that were saying, well, maybe we prefer Ripple. Maybe we prefer Ethereum. And we saw the launch of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, which is you know, kind of a uh, aligned to Ethereum, which we were talking about earlier. So it strikes me that JP Morgan have previous here, Um, Goldman have previous, so Goldman already left R3, in that they like to drive a technology and get the rest of the market to adopt it, whereas um, the European banks, who are probably a little bit more cost-focused rather than profit focused, don't really care what the platform is, so long as it's free and so long as it's open source. Well, so you're seeing the European banks, with the exception of Santander, remain largely committed to um, R3 and Corda and that kind of direction of travel, whereas the US banks are much more willing to go it alone with higher profit margins in their current business and actually a different set of desires. They are focused on how does DLT help us deliver new product and generate new profit, whereas in the European markets, much more actually regulation is really, really hurting us. we love it if it just tucks some cost out and allowed me to keep my head above water. So I think this is kind of underscoring some tough choices, yes, but for JP Morgan, I think it's not underscoring just tough choices, it's strategic choices. What do I actually see DLT Doing for my business, and what do I want to achieve? And some people are saying, well, this is the death knell for R3, that it must be over, they must be panicking in there. I don't think that's the case. I think R3 still remains pretty dominant for a certain type of product. But there's there's not going to be one platform to rule them all. That's not just going to be Ethereum does everything, Bitcoin does everything. You're going to see, like we already have in financial markets, you've got ICAP and you've got CLS and you've got all of these organizations that do very specific things in financial markets. R3 becomes another one of those. And then there'll be a whole bunch more pop up. So my view on this is it's it's interesting but it's not big news but is that just another you know another layer of these platform wars that we're
2: talking about where people come together in groups and gangs in order to try and build something and then get critical mass we've got something that happened at the infrastructure layer we've got things happening at the banking as a platform layer we've got things happening at the consumer level it seems to be platforms on platforms on platforms all competing for different parts of the market
5: I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that the, to take Simon's point that the way I see this kind of this blockchain walls uh, falling out, if you like, is, as you say, specialised solutions for specialised problems developing. So if you look at trade finance, people are loving using blockchain for like trade finance and supply chains right now. It seems to me like somebody will come up with a really good way of doing that, a really good platform, and then they will have the solution. So it could be JP Morgan. I mean, they have their own uh, code base Quorum, I think is what you said it was called, yeah. Um, You know, maybe that's what they actually want. You know, maybe actually they want to create a new platform for something specific that solves a problem they have and they're going to sell it to other people. And that's great. R3, on the other hand, want that. You know, they have different motivations and goals. It doesn't mean they can't all work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean they're all goals. wrong or yeah. either
4: of them's wrong. I mean, um, you've got Hyperledger Fabric, which has got 122 members. And uh, Quorum by JP Morgan is actually built on Ethereum. It's like a distribution of Ethereum. So Red Hat is a distribution of Linux. Quorum is a distribution of uh, Ethereum. So... I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing this uh, space get more complex and we're seeing people chasing specific use cases, but that itself creates a whole new problem. So if I'm building something that's very use case specific in financial markets, then am I not just recreating the problem I've already got in financial markets, which is it's highly fragmented, highly, you know, doesn't connect very well. And now we're all going to run off in a bunch of different directions, doing a bunch of different things in a bunch of different places, and none of it's going to talk to each other. Is this is this the banks just not getting
0: out of it what they wanted? And is this to be unexpected or is this something that we should have actually expected? So you get all of a, a huge amount of companies together. When uh, an X round of uh, investment is actually required, you're always going to get people dropping out anyway. So it kind of feels like this is a sort of natural thing that's being potentially made a big deal out of. Or are these companies just not getting – banks don't like to put money into something they don't get strategic advantage over. Is this – paying for everybody else to be educated and the ones that have left have gone actually we're smart enough we've got this we can go do some some, something
4: else you can't please all of the people all the time and actually if you've got a critical mass and you've got one or two outliers and those one or two outliers feel strong enough to go it alone I think that's what you're going to
5: say. If you were going to say which of these banks are going to pull away on their own, you would have said Goldman and JP Morgan. Like, they've got, they've got history of doing their own tech projects and they've got history of doing them well. They've also got an awful lot of money. So, you know, if you were going to put bets on who was going to pull away, I probably would have put bets on those two anyway. Do we see
3: a whole raft of patents coming out from those guys soon? Goldman have done oh, a few, a haven't they? they?
5: They've, yeah. they've
4: already pushed a bunch. I, I think we're past um, we're going to try and get in and patent anything that moves. I think what we're in the stage of now is how, what do we monetize first? Um, I think we're past experimentation and proof of concepts and that sort of stuff. I think most banks have a feel for where they're gonna, what they're going to do and what they're going to execute on. I mean, Northern Trust have been live with something since February. Um, there's a few other banks that have got services in the market already. This, it's not blockchain's coming in three years anymore. It's, it's here. It's working. It's like, who's going to profit from it and make money from it? That's, that's the real question.
0: Nice. And on that note, let's hear from our sponsors.
3: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round.
0: Let's
2: be honest.
3: Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
7: 11FS, Pulse Update. Hello, this is Ross from 11FS.
6: And this is Megan from 11FS.
7: In this week's 11FS Pulse Update, we're taking a look into the business banking world.
6: There are some really interesting challenger brands entering markets all around the world, servicing business customers directly, but also through platform plays.
7: Business banking customers have been neglected for a long time. In my own recent experiences, it took weeks to open an account, and the digital services are pretty disappointing. So, a market ripe for disruption?
6: Oh, you betcha. So in 11FS Pulse, we are beginning to feature more business banking propositions, and the first one we want to talk about today is Tide, a UK challenger. Instead of four weeks or longer to open up an account, customers can literally do it in three minutes.
7: On a mobile device and with KYC?
6: Yep, all done on the trusty mobile. KYC is carried out by capturing ID documents and taking a selfie. Not only that, Tide verify company director's details by connecting with Companies House in the UK. Once the account is open, they are given a neat little guided tour which explains what is on their road map.
0: I love it.
6: As always, if listeners want to see this great experience played back in video format along with hundreds of other great digital experiences, head over to our website at 11FS.com and look up 11FS Pulse.
0: Thank you very much for our sponsors. Coming back, we have quite an interesting one here, Jason, which I think you're going to talk about, about the Citizens Bank launching interactive tellers.
2: Couldn't work out whether this was a joke or genius, to be honest. <laughs> um, so these are interactive teller machines that they're calling ITMs. Do you see that? Like Ooh. ATM, ITM. Nice. Yeah, see yeah. Nice. And uh, essentially, it's a video chat at an ATM with a bank teller. Is it a real person? Yes. Okay. So there is someone sitting elsewhere that then become the bank teller on screen. So I guess rather than have one of those branches where you've got three or four people sitting around all day to deal with the 15 customers that come in, they're sitting in a basement in Slough or whatever the equivalent is in uh, Mississippi. Uh, and then whenever a client goes to one of these ATMs, they're suddenly dealing with them directly
0: discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I think it's really cool. I love this story so much because we had real people in the location and then we said let's automate that. Let's get rid of them and now we're going to have ATMs and that was great or not great for the people who lost their jobs. And now we're like, well that's not good if we actually need the human beings back. And so we've uh, it's like the perfect story of like automation, right? It's like there used to be people here living in the town, working in the town, having a, a community and jobs and whatever. And now we've got rid of that. And we have people very far away who uh, all work in a customer service center who get paid less. um, And uh, you talk to them through a screen. It's like the perfect story of
0: technology. I actually
1: get this. I was mocking to start with, but I do think it's a good idea. Oh, no, I know. I agree. It's a good uh, idea. And
0: I think the reason it's a good idea is because it it kind of actually allows you to take out the inconsistency of customer experience. You know, like digital, we expect to be, you know, I press that button, it does the same thing every time, right? You know, I live, you guys have got the luxury of all living reasonably, you know, in central places, I live in Norwich. So, like going into a branch and relying on whoever it is who's running that branch that they have the best mortgage skills to tell me about what I should be doing, uh, rather than just actually getting it—you know—tapping into the the best one anywhere. um That's why I kind of think this makes sense, you know. And from a cost efficiencies perspective, it moves us to you know the the not being a, a a restaurant but being a fast food thing. So the person who shows you to the ITM, you know, can be like a teenager, basically, can't they? You know, it doesn't matter.
2: But I hate to break it to you, but I've got this little, like, black slab in my pocket that has a phone and a screen. What? Yeah, I know, it's just crazy. And I can actually talk to people on, on this little black slab I thought you said black lab. then. I was like, <laughs> a black lab. <laughs> yeah. I can talk to them on this thing. Yeah, but you can't get notes phone. out of it, can you? It gives you notes. Cash. What? So I have to talk money. to someone to get notes out. You no,
1: know, I, I imagine it's like, if you're going and you're doing your normal banking, and then you've got a problem, she pushed the button, and they go, hey, how how can I help? Although I do disagree that you necessarily get like the best expert, right? You get someone in a call center who's following like a procedure and has the right answers and so on.
5: I think that, sorry, I was just going to say there's two points. One is that, um, I think it's drive-through, by the way. It's drive-through, which I noticed, which is even better. Like I pull up in my car and I lean out of the window, to, literally, to carry on the fast food analogy. Um, Get you, a
2: mortgage and then off you yeah, go. Yeah, you know, exactly. And a burger and fries, um, please.
5: The, the other thing that I really enjoyed about it was that they specifically said this is not for complicated transactions in their in their PR material. This is for simple everyday retail transactions, and I was like, uh, okay, that makes no sense. So why? Yeah, exactly. So they specifically say this is not for complex or business transactions. This is for for like everyday banking. This,
4: this goes back to the point about what is the competitive advantage of a human and I think what's interesting about this is they've said oh we should use humans a bit more and they should augment technology good big thumbs up humans should augment technology agree but what's their competitive advantage is it doing transactional stuff probably not it's actually to the point you guys have been making it's where at a journey do I need a human where I'm about to press buy on a mortgage but it's a lot of money have I got everything right I just need some reassurance I need some empathy I need some understanding i need a person who knows what they're doing to say yes you've done that right a a computer won't convince me i want a person to tell me that and that's where a human does have a competitive advantage and that could be served to me via my phone or at a drive-thru so they're they're testing it in two branches they've got this system in place they've built it they put it in
2: but my putting my product head on i've got this fantasy that someone would say to me jason i need this thing building and do you know how would i would mvp this a big cardboard box with a, with a teller <laughs> sitting inside with money. An it's actual, great. An you actual could,
3: mechanical Turk. You you can, yes.
2: <laughs> like, forget all of this cost. We could have told them in a couple of weeks whether it would happen or not, just with this little head of Doris, like, looking out this little hole in the box, saying, hello, can I help you? It's like, job done. Is can we have it? animals in the box? <laughs> you could. You could. That's, that's what... I've only charged 50K for that, I reckon. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting,
3: there's opening hours for these things as well, 7 to 5, 30 p.m., really? I think they're missing a trick here, like, you know, drunks using cash machines, midnight, middle of London.
0: There's, there's all kinds of sales opportunities there that they're missing. So put your kind of you know different hat on we're like us lot mobile banking yes like older generations people who are currently using branch network anyway feeling fearful that all this stuff's going to be taken away from them this is a much more cost effective way to serve those people and I, and personally I feel I've brought the tone down but I do feel that it's it's a sensible thing so I, I, sensible again. I don't it's
3: I, like I hate I think, it
2: when you get sensible I know sorry I think
3: definitely video in branch is fine video ATMs the ATM a the majority of these are really hot, old hardware. Uh, B, you know, there'll be queues in certain markets, like somewhere like Hong Kong. You get you're in real trouble if you've got a receipt. You know, there's there's a pace that's required. But I do, I do agree that there's got to be some sort of video interaction for. And we make assumptions that it's
1: older generations, but, but
3: you know, when you, when you currently <sighs> walk, not
1: right. when you walk into a branch like and uh, there's a bunch of machines, so you can a queue up or you can go to this machine, and there might be someone milling around that could help you. And I can see the logic of, uh, and if you do it well, well, I've, I'm trying to do whatever I'm trying to do, deposit money, so on and so forth, and I'm confused. So I just push this button. I get connected to someone in a call center and they go, hey, what's, what's wrong? And I go, oh, well, I, I, I don't know which like, drawer to open. And they'll go, it's the one with the red <laughs> handle. And you go, oh, thanks so much. And that's it, right? And that's, I mean, <laughs> that seems to me logical. But you, you've also got
2: the little old lady, just as you say, who, who goes to a branch for that chat, you know, and actually this allows, I guess, you know, her to to talk to <laughs> the, her friend. But a, why the, can't the she
0: do
5: element. that on Skype? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, that's my point. Um, there are places in the north of Wales where the internet connection is so bad. I kid you not, still to this day, people who don't have broadband in their homes because they can't afford it haven't got cellular connection. They literally cannot do any of this online banking stuff. I know because my mother lives there, and literally you have to like stomp down to the nearest village to use like, a branch. So having the, uh, the having the video in you know in branch, and if if that means they can keep more branches open because they just have to pay the rent on the building and they can have two screens in there who will do all that stuff, that I can see an argument for. Again, driving and questioning, but the video part. <laughs> There's logic. What about we
2: expand this and suddenly we put a lawyer or a doctor or any kind of service you want and suddenly it's like you go down and Did your doctor and not do swipe. that? Know, my doctor ba- Skype
5: this is me. Have you,
2: saw, have you seen <laughs> Babylon? The uh, the service you can sign up for now, which provides a you know a doctor specialist on your smartphone. You know, I could easily see you know the the one stop shop for. Actually, no, I'm not going to have a lawyer. I'm not going to have anything. Ah, oh, right, I want you to my an accountant to talk to. Well,
1: you what know. you could do with this is um, if you take it further, you could say, well, I don't need a branch. I just need this machine, yeah. right? And so therefore, I can close down the whole branch. I'll just have this. It's like a secure room. So
5: we're back round to driving.
1: Background, the drive yeah. Or it would be like an Amazon. You know, Amazon has their little uh, storage boxes all over town. You could have Barclays having their little tellers all around yeah. town. If I need to deposit money, I just stroll along. Hey, Edith, but, how's uh, it going? Well, well, so and that and that for in. me
0: is a, like the move. You know, branch transformation has completely been about taking the old building that we've got that has like probably some you know marbles and stuff, and, and actually sort of thinking about how you. Sort of re- uh, renovate that, like proper branch transformation is something like that. It's like a booth or a
4: kiosk somewhere that can access all of the services. You know, Amex did this with Walmart in the U.S. a couple of years ago. That they have their this uh, unique product for the subprime segment. That they have almost like a and, and in Walmart in the U.S. as well. You tend to get a McDonald's in there. You get a, a Starbucks in there. This like living inside the host where lots of people are already going. And the you rent really is say there. it in the creepiest way. Of- <laughs> 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 get
3: it's sci-fi. And then not going
4: that. But, uh, but I really think there's something to that right you, you, if somebody's got um, square footage and floor space and footfall like why not use the space they're already going to if you can share rent and it's actually going to bring people into that store as well and increase their footfall
0: I'm a bit worried about having a doctor in this box if I'm going to share like coming coming back to that slightly because you know give somebody a video chat and they do some pretty horrific things <laughs> anyway oh. this isn't
4: your nights on chat
1: roulette again. <laughs>
4: <laughs> moving on
0: oh, yeah. uh, well, next really,
1: up oh, I was going to say the really fun thing would be if the ATMs can Connected to each other, the ITMs connected to each other. So you could be doing your banking and it'd go, hey, James in Delaware is <laughs> also doing his banking. Why don't you say hi? What? <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> Dan- dangerous, very dangerous. Um, moving on, we have another story on the FT. This is investment in insurance tech startups drop sharply. What do we think about this, Aidan?
3: Well, after last week, when we talked about the Alliance deal, you know, big stake in lemonade, uh, some figures from uh, Towers Watson and CB Insights show that there's only been $283 million invested in the first three months of this year against $783 million in the same period last year. To find out more about this, we talked to Nigel Walsh. Hello, Nigel. Thanks very much for joining us. Hey, Aidan. How
7: are you doing? Yeah, well, thank you.
3: Uh, So a story in the FT this week about investment in the insurtech space dropping sharply in Q1.
7: Yeah, interesting highlights. I think the report, um, it gives us some insights into some of the trends. I I think, as you said previously, the Q1 is always an interesting one to look at. I'd always go back to it being a single measure, though. There's lots of other things that I would use as measures for the industry in general. You know, I'm just back from the conference, the first ever uh, fintech stage in Milan last week. Where in took up a whole day. You've got this week, of course, DIA and Barcelona, one of the biggest ones in Europe, going on. So, whilst I think investment might be down, or is, is indicated as down, as, as uh, per the report, I still think uh, the amount of interest and uh, collaboration that's going on right now is on a fever pitch. So, the investment might be a, a, an indicator to say, let's let people catch up with all the activities that's happened for the last. 18, 24, 36 months, which as you'll see, if you get back two or three years, is still up on, on where we were previously. So definitely want to watch, but I don't see any slowdown. If you look at some of the size of the deals that have come out again over the last few weeks as well, there's been some significant funding. So it'll be interesting to watch Q2 and see how that trends.
3: Yeah, we spoke last week about um, how maybe InsurTech is kind of having this condensed life cycle because it's, you know, it's probably a little bit newer than say FinTech, but Are the the bigger players learning from fintech and just saying, you know, let's snap these guys up quickly and rather than getting out of hand, the growth is kind of condensed. So we're seeing some different styles of activity.
7: I think it's a fair point. We have a definite benefit in learning from the mistakes or the lessons that were learned elsewhere and all the hard graft that was put in to see how people collaborate or work together or don't work together in many cases. I always go back to the fact that insurers and startups are actually working in a really collaborative way. And given that, that we're, we're working side by side or shoulder to shoulder, I think that makes the journey much smoother for those startups and insurance carriers to, to work together. It's still a slow journey once you get engaged, and it's never going to be quick enough for the startups. But I think those lessons that we've learned through fintech or elsewhere are really starting to um, be ad- ad- adhered to as we push through on the insure tech side. So for me, that's a that's an important point to, to pull out for sure.
3: Yeah, I think I think I'm in agreement. I think uh, I think InsureTech is, is is not certainly not on the downside, and we uh, we agree here. Uh, Nigel, uh, while you're here, I think we should probably talk about our upcoming InsureTech show. So we, you know, at Fintech Insider, we're looking to launch a monthly Insurtech show with yourself as well as partnering with Deloitte. Can you can we just tease a little bit more about that?
7: Yeah, I think no better time to mention, right? So I'm very excited that the the firm is bringing together Deloitte's global capability, um, the great work that 11FS are doing uh, on fintech, and then rolling that out across multiple different countries to uh, talk to what we can do in the InsurTech global scene. As I said, I don't think there's a a better time to go and understand what's going on. We've got a a different start point from where fintech was when you guys started out 250-odd episodes ago almost. Um, so I think we are at the right time to start going and, and talking more about InsurTech across the globe and some of the great things that are, are taking place.
3: Thanks so much Nigel for joining us. We will be hearing much more from uh, Nigel soon when we start our monthly show on insuretech. Thanks Nigel.
0: So it, does this mean InsurTech is not hot then? So should we should we cancel the idea of having a fintech insider insuretech or should we keep going with that?
3: No, I think we should definitely keep going with that show. Um, and Fintech itself had a similar blip, I think. Was yeah. it last quarter?
5: I Well, my, my, my point on this was going to be like, I'm always very cautious when I look at these numbers because you can do quarter-on-quarter comparisons, you're on your comparisons. I think we are generally seeing a slowdown in investment in Fintech. Uh, oh, tech. In tech. Well, yeah, in tech generally. I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. You've got VC caution. You've got rumours about evaluation. You've got just a general kind of pulling back yeah well yeah there is that there's a general pullback and i don't think we should all panic and go oh my god insurance is dead like i think you know it's insurtech is dead rather i think that it's just a slow down, and probably people being cautious, and that's probably not a bad thing.
4: The Apple results were just out, and they had a really soft quarter, but then everybody went, well, this quarter is always really soft for Apple, and yet when something like this comes out, the way that the broader fintech headlines are written is typically, oh, it's down, and it's not, surely once you click into the article, you'll see that actually compared to year-on-year, year, it's 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 really not that much. But but there is something here about, like, tech has been rising and rising, and that's been the only narrative. Will it become as big as fintech? Is it there to challenge it? Or is it just five years behind fintech and will have its own ramp? I think that, that story feels more... more... I think Gayla made an interesting point again last week.
3: As you talk about it, InsurTech seems to have had this compressed life cycle where FinTech's kind of been, you know, gone from baby, toddler, child, whereas it's kind of jumped and missed a few development stages. So it could just be...
5: Well, I think that's partly due to the involvement of the big guys. Anybody with re after their name has mm-hmm. gone after this in a big way and they've put a lot of money into it. Which is um, which is you know helped it kind of skyrocket. Which
4: is different to what we saw in banking initially. Is like banking said, oh well, we'll, we'll it's not going to bother us, and then oh we're going to partner with it. Uh, oh we've got a VC fund eventually, but that happened over sort of five years. Whereas in the insurance sector has stood back, watched that happen in banking, and gone, well actually no, we're going to jump in with both feet here, and we and also insurance as an industry arguably needs transformation more so than banking. It's it's kind of even more antiquated. Maybe it is the the fact that the insurance industry they know they are screwed
3: whereas maybe the banks are a little bit more arrogant <laughs> hubristic
5: well, Maybe, maybe no, they, we are. they know. They know. <laughs> I think the insurers are definitely ready for this. I think the, the you know anybody I've spoken to. I mean, you know, insurtech is one of still one of the hottest subjects I write about. It's one of our you know when we write reports, they are the best selling reports. I think they're ready. They know. They want it, and that's got to help.
0: It, it's it's harder. I think that's the thing. Insurance. Yeah. It, we've talked about this a number of times before, but insurance is actually harder than banking. Sorry, all the bankers who are listening, but because uh, fundamentally, to actually do anything interesting in insurance, you've actually got to change the business model. Everything else actually is just then fluff. Um, you know, arguably, the, the fintech fluff started in presentation layer, and we've kind of got to the point where we're now doing really interesting things in the back office. But nobody's really, f- like, fundamentally changing the business model of banking yet, but you have to start there with insurance,
2: which is scary, right? I mean, the the, the last time I worked insurance, 15 years ago or something, and I've still got this image of the brokers and the boozy lunch uh, and I was talking with someone recently that there's still an element of that there the whole sort of relationship and
1: you know taking someone out do you think that that that's well which, which uh, was it Lloyd's or someone like some months ago had banned boozy lunches or it might have been another uh... <laughs> it was it was
5: Lloyd's of London the insurance yeah. broker Yeah,
1: yeah and you sort of thought oh
5: that's, <laughs> okay. that's
7: that's that's oh cool. And
5: that's... just just to that point, I think that there is an interesting thing about disruption in insurance as well. and this may just be this is a, 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 a you know server of one, but you know the, people are still not moving their bank accounts. they're still not moving their current accounts, whatever exciting things there are out there. I change my insurance nearly every year because I go to compare the whatever or you know money, something, 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 and I go, which one's cheapest this year? Okay, boom, that one, I'll have that one, thank you. or when I go on holiday, I'm like, going on holiday, which one's cheapest? that one so the disruption has really come in and walloped them certainly in the UK I don't know if that's true outside and much
4: higher churn rate by default
5: yeah and, and, it's, and it's down to it's down to what's cheapest like it's you just a commodity isn't it it's a commodity
4: It's a,
3: you just shop on price and banks are obviously railing against that they don't well now we, well, we are special we are individual but no you're, you're each selling the freak. same yeah. I, I don't want to use the term snowflake because of <laughs> other commentations but yeah it's a it's a saturated commoditized market
5: I mean I, I would I think people don't even know who their insurance is from like I think they know where they bought it from. But I think if it's a travel insurance policy that you've bought for two weeks because you're going somewhere in exotic and you think you better have it, do you know who that's from or do you know which which comparison site is your favorite?
0: Well, I, and I think is, the email. Is this foreshadowing <laughs> slightly what will happen in banking? You know, we actually get to a point where nobody really knows where their, you know, their core actually is because actually that utility doesn't really matter. It's all of the services, all of the experiences above it, which, you know, arguably um, compare the market and my supermarket are just providing a insurance service that you consume other people's stuff. So anyway, uh, moving on. So this is a... Uh, report that has been written in conjunction with strands called she banking. What do we think to this one?
5: So I think that the idea that there are uh, certain groups who have been left out of finance is a fair one. I think there are certain parts of the world where women, in particular, have been kept away from from you know having control of their own money for for whatever social you know and demographic reasons. I'm not sure that this report is the, the best way to approach it. For a start, when I looked at it, as far as I can tell, the, the, the sample they use is only 20 people and in, in one country, which is Spain, which um, just from a methodological point of view, I, I find it very hard to imagine that you can, um, you know, take those experiences and apply them to yes to, to all women everywhere. Um, I think also the point is is slightly missed, which is actually it's not about saying women are underserved. We must serve women. It's more about banking is failing to serve anybody. Banking is failing to give anybody what they actually want. You know, the report says women want to be listened to. Well, actually, I think bank customers want to be listened to, male, female, anybody else. You know, I think actually the the the, the concept is great. The idea is probably in the right place. But actually, what we should be looking at is okay. What do what customers want? They want to be listened to. They want personalized service. Why don't we just do that for every individual customer rather than going, women, you're 52% of the global population. You know, that's that's a bit like going, every millennial wants the same thing. They're all going to have vastly different experiences and desires. And-
2: so I'm going to jump in here because I, I think there's there's something, there's something there's some part of truth in this around the fact that it's, that fintech especially is a male-dominated, you know, middle middle-class white, you know, bastion of of people who are generally see themselves as the customer and are building solutions for themselves and i and just from a, a kind of customer product perspective actually diving into the brutal realities of people's lives and trying to pull out those truths for for different groups whether it's money's aiming at people who are you know immigrants or revolute for travelers you've got to think that actually you know women do control a big part of the household income they do have there are some some needs that are probably being not being looked after and what what a good example. So um Amazon have uh, just launched a new version of the Echo or new a new part that actually has a uh, a, f- a camera on in order that you can stand in front of and and take photos, yeah? And this is not aimed at me, I can tell you. Even looking from the advertising, even looking from everything else. This is obviously a a tech consumer product aimed at women. And I do wonder if there are things like that in finance where it's not it's not about let's pink it and shrink it and you know create some God. some female fintech product. It's about trying to find out Needs for a portion of society that, that are a segment.
5: So yeah, so I think I think that the there the, are um, probably more subtle ways to do it. Um, I think a friend and I were talking about this uh, over the Easter weekend about certain tech products that are very specifically for ladies, but are not necessarily marketed as such. They are marketed as a solution to a problem you have. And I think the problem with when you go in there and go right she banking, if it was every man in the room goes, oh my god, no, like I don't not for me, like or or you know it it kind of actually pushes other people away and you'll never I completely agree with you that we need more people solving more real problems. And actually that means that probably more women and more people from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds in rooms solving problem solving products. I just I just think that this, you know, I think that producing reports that just say women want one thing is 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 not overly helpful I think there's a there's a a more nuanced um, debate to be had. It
4: it requires design thinking doesn't it and the building the personas and understanding the nuances of those different types of personas and targeting a product development towards those personas and really truly understanding those problems is should be a part of any good product design thinking and actually you could say therefore as a result of looking at that we've seen that the most underserved segments are this generation or this classification this persona this is so and so and they need A B C. Uh, And then you would say, and we're noticing that predominantly this is happening in the female segments, in the ethnic minority segments, and so on. And you would call those things out as as the second thing um, that you do. And and that personalization thing was something that we, we talked about a lot on our money and mental health show that we did at the FCA tech sprint a couple of weeks ago. And they were saying exactly the same thing. Don't build an app for somebody who may be suffering from depression. Build an app for somebody who needs to see their money better and sometimes and needs to see their money less at other times. Give them that personalization give them the tools to manage it themselves treat them like an adult uh, and I think that ability to do that applies equally in this uh, case
1: I think you're totally right that the the, uh, the the fact that design choices are made by a certain uh, type of person um, in, in general I think that does uh, affect the kind of products that get built I think with, the, with this report I wonder if you'd got a group of, you know, men, women, um, you know, like a, a mixed group of people, I imagine they'd say a lot of the, the same things that this group of people said, which is, I feel like my, in broad terms, I feel like my bank doesn't care about me. And so I felt like the, the message was far more universal than perhaps the sort of the the, the report suggests.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think if you look at, uh, if you like, you could literally read some of these statements and do a insert any group into it. <laughs> yeah. We've discovered that the vast majority of insert group, feel detached from the world of finance. It's culture jargon putting them at a disadvantage when it comes to taking control of their future of their finances and making daily decisions with a sense of security. In short, banks do not connect with people you know like i (laughs) think i think that's the sort of statement that's really sort of been made in this and i think you know we talk a lot about uh you know digitization moving to a kind of a generic experience that nobody it's like that t-shirt that fits nobody mentality you know so um yeah i think interesting i think interesting that there hasn't been a bank that's come out and really just been focused because you know, insurance. We had Sheila's Wheels, which was kind of and like pink. And those guys have done pretty well in terms of like. It was up.
5: so much cheaper. <laughs> yeah,
0: but but I, I'm I wonder if you know playing back to the insurance yeah. conversation a second ago. You know, some element when we get to a point where there is no differentiation and it's not about a brand, it's about a, a line in an aggregator uh, decision point, and the price is very similar. Something like this, having a bank aimed at, even if it's purely marketing, and actually it's doing all the other stuff that you would make to reach millennials, even like purely from a branding perspective, then actually I could see them starting getting customers. Well, I've
2: seen a couple of, there are a couple of fintech startups that are aiming at families, Which again is another interesting aim because actually you could have you could have aimed this very much at more at families where fintechs again tend to be created for that you know young single what you know going out kind of demographic rather than the more the complexity around having children and elderly parents and a a wife or husband and all of this kind of thing so i I guess yes i guess i'm reaching to to justify that there are different angles here. That Yeah,
5: I mean, they, they do mention in the report a couple of banks that are particularly good for, for targeting, in this case, women. Now, one of them just says UBS, which I find an interesting example. Um, the other thing, I think in a particular, one area in particular has tried this and that's uh, automated investment. There are many, many uh, robo-advisors out there that target women in particular. I don't know how well they're doing. I, I Last I heard, not particularly well, but that could be for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so people people are trying. And in that example, actually, I can almost see the point because women do tend to live longer. They do tend to have different health care needs. They do have t- different career paths. On the other hand, you could just say, I'm going to make a personalized service, which takes into account, like, are you a smoker? Okay, let's take this many years <laughs> off your life. You know, I, there are arguments yeah, for both yeah. sides. I'm I'm not saying it's definitely shouldn't be done sure. but it's um it's interesting
0: i think there's there's an interesting trend on reports to start using quantitative like we've got statistics being quoted for very small qualitative research sample sizes that's a bit worrying you know making statements about 80 80 percent of all purchases are carried out by women on a sample size so small seems like quite a sweeping generalization to make so i think there's definitely some Back to my Gartner days of doing, uh, doing research, um, they probably would have freaked out with me using such a, uh, a kind of a small sample size and using it to uh, infer statistical significance.
5: Yeah. We, we would only ever use a sample size that's for sort of qualitative. Like You could use the quotes, you can use the statements by all means, but saying 80% of, of 20 people and then applying it to <laughs> adju- is a much the bigger population world. is…
0: <sighs> Indeed. Moving on, this is a story on Globes, and this is Jess Staley sees technology as driving globalisation and changing banking, but says there will always be a Barclays. What do we think about this one, Jason?
2: Uh, I mean, this was catnip to Twitter trolls. I mean, this just brought people out in droves. Uh, It it starts with, you know, quite a good interview with, um, with Jess. Uh, and he talks about Barclays and how he sees it within the global context and some geopolitical stuff and Trump, but towards the end, he he starts to get a uh, a bit punchy and says things like, I really like the innovation I see at Barclays, but I don't think that small fintech companies are going to challenge us. And that just set Twitter a rage. Suddenly everyone was jumping out, making comparisons to Blockbusters, Kodak, you name it. There was insert, you know, traditional company that disappears here. Uh, And he he goes on, so take, for example, a fintech company that has a payment system platform that stops working for some reason. A software bug, not pleasant, but it doesn't cause huge damage. By contrast, every day, 30% of Britain's GDP goes through Barclays, and a shutdown of a few hours is dangerous for British and global economies. Large corporations like Microsoft or Barclays need robustness and stability, which are critical to the economy and very expensive to maintain. And certainly, if you build it from the ground up. So I'm not concern that new technologies will harm Barclays which
4: is quite a statement yeah it's the bullishness of it isn't it
5: can we can we just discuss the the Barclays downtime in february for all their debit cards online banking and mobile banking just as a cuz people at work are always bringing this up about the idea of well oh, monzo goes down all the time or you know revolut goes down all the time and i'm like yeah, but how often does your banking app go down the just, yeah. to, just as a starting point. Very
4: good. I think there's also something about Barclays about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, bought a company called The Logic Group for about a billion pounds. And that was because they didn't do any acquiring, so they didn't do payments online particularly well in Barclay Card. They wanted to go out and buy a company. And there was a recognition, I think, implicit in that purchase that Stripe and Braintree and PayPal were winning that online space. So if it's not affecting you, Jess, why did you go out and spend a billion on a company to play in a space that you couldn't play? I think it is affecting you and you've not competed adequately in those new areas. So, like, I think there's there's, uh, the side of, like, is Barclays going to go away anytime soon? No. But is death by a thousand cuts a realistic thing? And, uh, you know, the constant downsizing that the bank's seen in the past 10 years, the amounts of parts of the business it's been fire-sailing and just chopping off its limbs to stay in business, the fact that it had to take three billion of Qatari money to stay afloat, I mean, it's not going away, but it's stayed together by hook or by crook. So, like... I missed Maybe. you last week, Simon.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: just going to put it
1: out there. I missed, I missed you. You know, just to take the you know opposite side of the argument because I mean, you know, he obviously had recently some personal uh, issues or questions about his personal judgment. Um, but if you, were, if I were to say to you, a bank CEO will say that our tech is great and we do not, you know, we're not worried about fintech companies. Which one would be, you know? Which one would have the most credibility in saying that? Maybe Barclays? Um, just in terms of, you know, they have, like, I, I I bank with them and their app seems pretty good, which is one of the reasons why I'm always a bit confused with all the new fintechs. And I'm like, oh, my banking's is fine. Um, and then the second thing is, I mean, this point about uh, sorry, um, the reliability of their systems versus the reliability of, um, of new companies' systems, you're right. Obviously, you know, banking systems go down and, you know, and he's right there. It's a huge impact on the economy. But there is a sort of truth about, yeah, like old code like doesn't get worse just because, just by sitting there, right? It doesn't. It's not. It doesn't like have a sell like a sell by date. And so the fact that banks have legacy code. Also means that they have code that you know. Well, they, oh, this bug happened, so they fixed that, and well, then it broke in a different way, and then that bug happened, and they fixed that. Whereas, the new companies who are building new systems are going to have to go through that process, which the banks have already gone through to an extent. And
2: I'd agree with you, apart from you can't leave that legacy code alone. Suddenly, we're into a new world where you're building new systems, you're having to replace things. Suddenly, the You know, the the old mainframe at its core won't do the things that you need when APIs are there and half the country are are asking for their, their balance every 20 milliseconds. Uh, and so the stability was great when the market was stable, when the product was stable, which it isn't anymore. So I think that's where actually big banks with 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 a legacy stack are kind of stuck because on one hand, they they benefited from that thing that the reason that the mainframe was going since the seventies, the mainframe's absolutely fine. But now we've got to change all that and we've got this onion layers of arguably thousands of systems sitting on top of them, and we're being challenged by a market that's rapidly changing and evolving new products. So we're going to have to start digging into that. And equally, you've got letters to the chairman, one, two, and three, and
4: whatever, around, you know, don't let your bank go down. I mean, that's a really hard place to play in. Uh, And to be fair to Barclays, as my former employer, and also a place that I have a lot of friends, and also a place that we did a recent Barclays takeover with. Uh,
0: Oh, no, no backtracking now.
4: (laughs) No, no, no. I just want to say that, like, I want to echo Karim's point. If there's any bank that's going to do digital themselves, it's probably Barclays because they seem to have the right attitude and right approach to it. My point was actually more about opportunity cost, not the stuff you've got today will continue to work. Jess, you're absolutely right. And actually, you're looking at a couple of years in front of us where maybe we're going to see deregulation in capital markets. Maybe your investment bank's going to return to massive profitability and let the good times roll. But the pace of changes is increasing. And if you want to win these new businesses, the new business areas like uh, factoring market invoice, if the new business area is uh, small business lending, if the new business area is um, kind of the new generation of high net worth individuals, uh, if the new generation is payments, it's Stripe and it's Braintree that are taking these, it's Nutmeg and so on that are taking the other businesses as market invoice. They're playing in the gaps. And actually, how is your business going to grow outside of investment banking and outside of the market going up and down if you're not launching new products successfully and these organizations are trying to launch new products but maybe they should look at partnering. but but they're not saying they're not going to do any of that
0: stuff that's that's the thing i think uh, i think what we're reacting to here is and, and i'll be honest with you i walked into this one on linkedin there was like a million people getting excited about this. And it was like one of those things where like, there's a crowd of people and you join the crowd of people and you're like... What? And suddenly you've got a pitchfork yeah. and a torch it's like- and you're like, burn him! And, and, and it was like, yeah, okay, this guy said a thing. What did he say? He said, uh, we're probably going to be okay. And, I'm like, and I was like, okay. So for me, when I read through specifically what he's actually gone about saying is not like hey our technology is the best technology in the world we're good we don't need any of this new stuff actually what he he's saying reading between the lines here is like if we make the right decisions if we keep evolving if we keep doing what we're doing you know we are a critical british uh, part of the uh, you know the gdp that's actually going through every day it kind of feels like it's one of those things that i don't think he's going like fintech pfft, you know, not a big deal. I think he's going like, look, we're making the right decisions. We're moving our organization forward. Culturally, we're doing these things. Technologically, we're doing these things. You know, we're good.
5: I think he probably used the wrong examples to make his point. I think to add more nuance to what I was saying earlier about, you know, bank online banking falling over, it's, ex- it's exactly the point that you guys have made. Like, You can't say our system is fine and then because everybody wants to check their balance online on payday, it falls over and you go, oh, well, it's just a glitch. That's what people expect now. People expect that. And if you can't keep up with expectations, then you're in trouble. Probably the the, the bad example for them to use. I agree completely with your point, Kadima, about like if any bank in the UK was going to have good tech, it's going to be Barclays because they do so much in-house. Question about how sustainable that is and how much they spend on it and how maybe there might be better ways of doing that is possibly where he, where Jess, could have made a more Nuance point himself, and probably avoided some of this kind of up in arms. Well,
4: I worry about not invented here syndrome um, at large organisations generally, not just um, at, at banks. And I think the other news story that Anna Barclays this week was them launching the largest fintech um, hub in Europe. Uh, so that is is definitely a signal of intent. Uh, but at the same time, intent doesn't buy you results, and I think can
1: you convert that intent uh, is is a really interesting question. Oh, sorry, I was going to change the subject. So, but there's, there's another thing that he said in this interview, which I sort of found disagreeable, and you're seeing this from uh, curiously from uh, sort of bank CEOs since Trump was elected, which is you know, yes, regulation is is right and it was right that we were more heavily regulated uh, after the financial crisis, but maybe we can, you know, maybe we've gone a little bit too far. And Why don't we just take one step backward and honestly we won't take two, just the first step backward is all we need to take. And so he says here, we must not, of course, return to where we were in 2007, 2008. So glad to think, glad that, you know, to see that he thinks that, but it's possible to ease up a little. And then he, <clears throat> he claims that there were three crises we've seen and Calling these things a crisis is bizarre. The collapse of US government bonds in October 2014, the removal of the rate ceiling on the Swiss franc and last year's crisis in the pound-dollar exchange rate. Do you recall these huge crises? I mean...
5: Was that what the last one, the, the one day where the pound suddenly plummeted and right. pulled back up again in 24 hours because somebody made a fat finger yeah. error?
1: Exactly, right? And so <laughs> exactly. he so he's saying, well, look, we've had these crises and it's because we've gone a little bit too far in terms of bank regulation. And I just think that's nonsense. But it's starting to creep in. Jamie Dimon has been... Actually, he was very uh, much more sort of uh, loud and brash about it, saying, you know, we have gone too far, and we need to deregulate, and we have too much capital. Um, but you're starting to see bank CEOs start to say this, and it's interesting that it took, you know, 10 years for the mood to start to change, which, you know, I guess uh, yeah, that's how long it takes. And well, and
4: I saw a chart um, recently that says property is booming across most major U.S. cities. Property is booming across Europe. Uh, we're in a property bubble again, whether we like it or not. So uh, let's deregulate and, and pro- whilst property's booming. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We could bundle but do you, all that but do you think that, that 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 sea change, if if that's what it is, that suddenly bank CEOs are just starting to test the water a bit, just to aid I it, think it, it is, it, yeah. yeah, I you think know.
1: it is to do with the uh, the partly to do with the fact that we have a Republican administration with a great many uh, bankers in that in high profile positions in that administration, and I think people think, well, here's an opportunity to start to roll back some of the things that were put in place um, uh, after the crash. And then you have people, you know, Trump will say things like, we're going to put back in Glass-Steagall or we're going to break up the banks. And it's just nonsense, right? You know, if regulation is going to go in any direction in the U.S., it's going to be an easing. Um, And I think bank CEOs are sensing that. And it's time to start making the argument, a reasonable argument, that maybe we can just, you know, just a little bit here, a little bit there. um, And soon, you know, we start marching backwards. Suddenly it's white Lamborghinis and...
0: uh, (laughs) the good days are back ladies and gentlemen and on that note thank you very much for joining us sarah kachansky is that right
5: that's correct oh i got i
0: I just got through that one by the skin of my teeth um sarah where can people learn more about yourself
5: so uh i um publish quite regularly on business insider um i write for business insider intelligence which is behind a subscription wall but you can find me occasionally on the free site and definitely on twitter
1: very good,
0: and Kadim Schuber, Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people hear more from you?
1: Um, you can find me writing on FT Alphaville and also on Twitter. Do not follow me. That's reverse psychology. Please do follow. <laughs> <laughs> very confusing. <laughs>
0: Thanks very much, guys, and that's everything for the news. Just before we go, just to tell you that Innovate Finance have put out a first Industry Sandbox report. If you guys want to check out this report, go to industriesandbox.org and keep an ear out for the interview that we'll be doing with Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance next week. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. We love those reviews. That's all for now.